This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, again we express our gratitude this time and focus upon your word. We think about how many times in the Psalms that the writers of the Psalms extol the magnificence of your revelation, that you have given us a revelation of yourself in word that has been recorded, preserved down through the centuries, and that in your word we have truth. In your word we come to know who you are, we come to know who we are, and we come to understand how you have provided for us. It is your word that is more valuable, more precious, than anything else in life, because it is your word. And Father, now as we take this time to focus upon your word and upon the teaching of your word, we pray that we might not take this lightly, that we might be responsive to your authority as expressed through your word, and that we might realize that you have given us your word in order that we may fulfill our destiny as creatures created in your image and likeness that we might uh, fulfill a destiny that you have set for the human race and that we have a destiny for church-age believers in order to glorify you. And so, Father, as we study your word today, may God the Holy Spirit help us to understand these things, to see how they apply in our own lives and uh, under his ministry, see how we need to change what we need to change. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're back in Colossians 1 this morning, so open your Bibles with me to uh, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, and we're going to touch on these four things that the Apostle Paul is praying for, uh, which should be a pattern and a model for us in our own prayer life. Now, while everybody is turning there, I wanted to make a comment about the uh, hymn that the choir just sang, Beneath the Cross of Jesus. This is a a tremendous hymn, though if you think through the words, we're going to be singing this as a congregation, Uh, I think it's on the schedule in the next couple of weeks, and we'll be singing it. It's a great hymn, a great meditation on Jesus Christ, on occupation, occupation with Christ. We changed up the words a little bit. Actually, we went back a little bit more towards the original. In the uh, last line of the... uh, Uh, the last line of the second verse, in most modern hymnals it reads uh, that we confess the uh, wonders of his glorious love and our unworthiness. That's how it's been for some time now. But unworthiness is kind of a 
mediocre view of sinfulness. It somehow means, you know, we're not quite worthy, but we're not what the Bible says we are. Sort of like the uh, Isaac Watts hymn that talks about, um, you know, referring to us as a, as a worm. You know, I've heard people say, oh, that's that old worm theology that human beings just uh, have no standing before God. And that's what the Bible says, though. Unfortunately, in the 20th century, some of these truths have been sort of watered down. So we changed it back pretty close to the original. It was my uh, own worthlessness, but I wasn't sure that quite communicated as clearly as my own sinfulness, which is what the uh, writer is saying. So um, that is the only change I know of, but that's coming up. So that will be uh, something you can think through as we sing the hymn to reflect upon, uh, upon the words. Now, as we look at Colossians chapter 1, and we have been studying in Colossians chapter 1 for the uh, last uh, month or two, aside from a few interruptions with the conference and uh, with Resurrection Day last week, the focus in this, really the first 12 verses or so of Colossians, especially from verse 3 down to verse 12, is the Apostle Paul's prayer for the Colossian church. And in these prayers that we have recorded in Scripture, and there are literally hundreds of prayers recorded in Scripture, especially if we count uh, all of the Psalms as prayers, which they are, uh, we get a pattern, a model for how to pray and what to pray for and where the priorities should be in prayer. It's interesting that USA Today had a uh, poll that uh, was that they were commissioned to conduct for the Lutheran Brotherhood, which I believe is a men's organization in the uh, Lutheran denomination. And in their uh, survey, they reported that 9 out of 10 adults in America say that they pray. Well, that would include all the Buddhists and Muslims and all manner of different beliefs. And the question was then asked as part of this survey, what do they pray for most often? 98% said they prayed for their own families. 81% said they pray for the world's children. 77% said they prayed for that time-honored topic, world peace. That would include, of course, probably every contestant in every beauty contest that we have. And 69% prayed for co-workers. I wonder what they prayed for for their co-workers. <laughs> well, it doesn't tell us a whole lot about how they prayed or what they prayed for for their families, for the world's children, or for their co-workers. But... What we have in Scripture is an emphasis in these prayers on how we should pray for other people, what those priorities should be. And I think that it's important for us to pay attention to them. Maybe it will enrich our own prayer lives as we get a little more specific, thinking about uh, how the apostles prayed and how the writers of the Old Testament prayed in terms of their focus on the spiritual life. We saw in the first part of this, the first in verses 3 down through 8, that Paul's focus was on gratitude to God. This was a priority in prayer, is to express our 
gratitude to God for what he has accomplished in the lives of believers. He expresses thankfulness for their spiritual growth. Now, if you're praying for other people and you're praying for their spiritual growth, then as you think about that and you think about how you are praying for that, uh, you should be thinking not only about how this person, hopefully a loved one, husband, wife, child, parent, close friend, how their spiritual life is going. If you pray every day for the next year for someone in terms of their spiritual life, I suggest you probably will even talk to them about spiritual things if you have the opportunity. Because it's going to, the more you pray for something, it's going to change your thinking and the way you uh, reflect upon that person your relationship to them. The Apostle Paul expresses his thankfulness for their spiritual growth and the fact that they are bearing fruit, that God is producing something in their life. And so this is a priority, not just for other people, but it's a priority for each of us that we should be praying for our own spiritual growth and that God might produce fruit in us. Fruit in the Scripture has several different applications, generally just talking about production in some way. It can be production in terms, in some contexts, in terms of uh, Paul talks about the fruit that he has seen in some congregations, and he's talking about evangelism and those who have uh, converted to Christianity and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. In other passages, fruit reflects character qualities that are transformed by God the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. Uh, against such there is uh, nothing bad that can be said. So that's in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. So we have that kind of a fr- fruit. Then we have uh, fruit that is sometimes uh, spoken of in terms of financial assistance that was given, especially when Paul was taking up a collection to take back to Jerusalem to help those who were uh, suffering through the famine in Jerusalem. So fruit has a has a wide variety of of uh, asset aspects to it. So you're not going to think of it like some people do, just in terms of overt behavior. When you get into that, sometimes we see people become fruit inspectors, something that is typical of what. Uh, is described as lordship salvation, which describes a way of looking at the gospel that if you're truly saved, you're going to see certain overt manifestations change in your life, which is a shallow and superficial approach to fruit, and it's also a legalistic and uh, heretical approach to salvation because it introduces works through the back door uh, rather than through the front door. Scripture teaches that... uh, justification is one thing and sanctification spiritual growth character transformation is another the justification is when we trust in jesus christ as our savior and while we receive a new new nature and we become a new creature in christ that does not inevitably produce growth or fruit that means our volition has to be engaged we have to study god's word god the holy spirit works in our life in order for that to manifest. So those are distinct, but in lordship salvation, they are viewed as being uh, uh, so closely interconnected that justification automatically produces some measure of experiential uh, sanctification. Paul uh, also expresses his gratitude for the Colossians that they have studied and 
assimilated God's word into their thinking and into their living. That is uh, the focal point, is that it becomes something that is manifest in our lives so that there is a change that takes place, not something we manufacture artificially, which unfortunately happens in uh, with a lot of people and a lot of congregations, uh, emphasizing just an overt change rather than the priority of spiritual growth uh, that leads to that overt change. Then in uh, verse 9, Paul comes back to talking about what he is praying for, and in these verses down through verse uh, <clears throat> uh, 15, or excuse me, down through verse 12 specifically, we have four distinct purposes that are expressed, uh, that he expresses for his prayer life. And so let me just read through these verses, and then we'll come back and summarize this. For this reason, Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. So we're going to move from His prayer of gratitude to the reason that we should be moved to gratitude in the last two verses, which is what God has provided for us in, in salvation. Now, this passage may seem fairly simple to some of you, uh, actually, if you compare a lot of different English translations, you'll see that there's a variety of ways in which these are paragraphed and the sentences are punctuated and where the commas and all the other things come into play because it is not always that clear in the Greek how this should be structured. It's a complicated sentence structure for which the Apostle Paul is known. Colossians 1, 9, and 10 was the focus of the last lesson. And in that, we see the first two things that the Apostle Paul prayed for, the first two purposes that he, was, uh, that he expresses for his prayer. Now, one thing I want you to note here, because sometimes I know some of you, some of you I know too well, but I know you, and you think, oh, I can't pray that for that person. That's up to their volition. I can't pray for that. The Apostle Paul certainly prayed for things like that. That God, because he's ultimately praying that God would indeed put that person in an environment or circumstances or whatever where they would be uh, sort of forced, uh, not forcing their volition, but limiting their options, putting them in a situation or circumstances that is that would move them in that direction. And so he prays for these things. He prays that they would grow spiritually. Now, we know that ultimately that depends on an individual's volition. So why is he praying to God? Because you can't, you can't make the same error the Calvinists make and confuse divine causation with human causation. And that we can pray to God 
to act in certain ways in people's lives to bring about circumstances to move them in specific directions, and that's what he is doing in these passages. In verse 9 he says, For this reason we also, that we refers to uh, himself and Timothy, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. And the first thing they ask for is expressed by uh, what's called a uh, hina, or uh, hina is the word in the Greek, it's a purpose clause, to ask that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will. Now, last time I pointed out that this is the Greek verb plerao, same word, same verb we have in Ephesians uh, 5.18, to be filled by means of the Holy Spirit. The content of the filling is expressed here. It's the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding. That comes from God's word. He'll make that more clear in Colossians uh, 3.16 when he says to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That passage from uh, Colossians 3.16 and following compared to Ephesians 5.18 and following shows the interconnection between the two that the contents of the word and the one who gives the power, the energy, the understanding is the Holy Spirit. When we're in right relationship to him, he utilizes the word towards our spiritual growth and spiritual advance. When we're out of fellowship, then the Holy Spirit isn't inoperative. He's just operating in other areas of our life, not producing that spiritual growth and spiritual advance. So the first thing that Paul prays for is that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's towards a secondary objective, which is the second purpose that he expresses in the um, uh, 10th verse there, which is that you may walk worthy of the Lord. He's not just concerned about the fact that you know a lot of doctrine, that you know the word, that you understand a lot of principles, that you've memorized uh, 5,000 Bible verses, but that this is all towards a, another goal or objective, and that is that we live in a manner that is worthy of all that God has done for us. We're not living that way to gain grace. That's really a, a contradiction. We are living that way because as we've come to understand the full fullness of the grace that God has given us, we are moved to gratitude to uh, live for him in light of the purposes for which he, he has saved us, that we were saved for the purpose of good works, that is, walking by means of the Spirit and applying doctrine and glorifying God in our life. Now, in the next couple of verses, which we'll get to in a minute, Paul uses two participles. That's what makes this section a little difficult in translating the Greek, is you have uh, Paul using four different ways to express purpose clauses. And uh, so that somehow gets lost. He does it with a Hena clause to begin with, with a, an infinitive and to walk worthy of the Lord, and then with two uh, participles that express his purpose as well. And verses uh, 11 and 12, where he states that that one purpose of his prayer is that we be strengthened with God's power. Now, how is a person strengthened by God's power? Well, we'll see that when we get there. It's related to the filling of the Holy Spirit, of course. And then lastly, the purpose for prayer is to give thanks to the Father, that we might have real gratitude towards God. And gratitude and hu is based on humility, 
and gratitude and humility are mutually exclusive to pride and arrogance. And so we have to understand why this emphasis on gratitude, because it puts us in a right orientation to the authority of God and to the uh, and to the plan of God. Now, when we look at uh, verse 9, as we did in the last lesson, I pointed out that we're to be filled with the knowledge of his will and that the Greek word used there for knowledge is epinosis. This is a word that was not used in classical Greek. It, it first shows up in Koine Greek, and Paul's just taking a little jab at his opponents here in Colossians. They're, they're, some people will write of them that they're Gnostics. Gnosticism really didn't come into vogue for about another uh, 50 to 100 years. So, But the ideas that were present in Gnosticism were floating around uh, the Greek culture for several hundred years before coalesced into full-blown Gnosticism, and they put this emphasis on knowledge. They, they really had a, uh, an arrogance problem with intellectual superiority. They could look back to this rich tradition they had had from the pre-Socratics to uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, on up through the uh, more current uh, philosophical systems of Stoicism and Epicureanism and, and uh, Neoplatonism was just, uh, just around the corner and already beginning to develop. Some of its uh, ideas were developing at this time. So they put this emphasis on knowledge for knowledge's sake and that if you just had the right knowledge, if you just got it right, then you would live at a higher plane of existence and uh, the afterlife would be so much more superior. So these ideas came into, into Christianity where people put an emphasis on knowledge for knowledge's sake. And that's often plagued Christianity down through the ages because Christians are not immune to the trends of the culture around us. And there are often people who put such an emphasis on knowledge for knowledge's sake that it you know, smacks of some sort of neo-Gnosticism. But then you'll see a reaction set in into the, into the church, which we've seen over the last 40 or 50 years, that becomes anti-knowledge, anti-rational, anti-doctrinal, that we need to put an emphasis on our feelings, on our psychological well-being, on our emotions so that we are emotionally whole. And what's happened is that those ideas really come out of the culture just as much as uh, uh, other ideas do, and they have their source in uh, ideas of psychology, contemporary psychology, sociology, which brings up various ideas on the role of men and the role of women and what we produce is an even more effeminate culture and an effeminate church setting. And, in fact, this is, I think, most clearly seen in a lot of the songs that are sung uh, in what is referred to as contemporary worship, if you th look back to many of the classic hymns that we sing, a number of them are set to marches. There is a, there is a strong masculine tone to the music of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. But in the 20th century, in the contemporary uh, setting, there is a more effeminate tone to a lot of the uh, a lot of the contemporary songs, and they are much more subjective, and they are much more focused on the individual worshippers' uh, own expression of 
of, uh, of his, emo- his emotion and his emotional state. All of this just uh, further increases the um, feminization of the church and is a real attack on masculine leadership, both within the church as well as, as, well, as, within the, uh, well as within the culture. Knowledge is something that the Scriptures emphasize, not for its own sake, but that it's only through the knowledge of God's Word that we know God's will and we can think as God would have us to think, and that demands study. That demands a focus upon, upon God's Word. And so the Apostle Paul says that we are to be filled with the knowledge of His will, this epinosis. It's a full knowledge, and it only becomes epinosis, as we'll see in a minute, because of the role of the Holy Spirit in our life the knowledge of wisdom and spiritual understanding. So I want to stop. Uh, We talked more about walking worthy last time. I want to go back and look briefly at how we are filled with the knowledge of his will and what wisdom and spiritual understanding are. And so I developed this diagram of what I call the grace learning spiral. And the circle here represents our our soul, the thinking ability uh, within our soul, which is... Uh, described by the Greek word nous, which is the word for mind. This is, this is our thought world. And then there's another word that's used in Scripture that focuses more on the center of our thinking, and that is the Greek word cardia, referring to heart. Uh, in Scripture, when you see the word heart, it never refers to, a, or it's never used metaphorically or idiomatically for the organ that pumps blood through our body. That, that it's never used that way. It's used, though, in a way similar to an, our English idiom, is we refer to the heart of a matter. That's talking about the very center or core of something. Uh, you go to the store and you buy hearts of palm. That comes out of the center uh, of the palm. And so the, the metaphor here has to do with going to the real core or center of something. And so the cardia is the place where uh, the core of our thinking, our core belief system, our core value system. It is out of the heart, the Scripture says, that come the issues of life. And so what we see in terms of the biblical, scriptural description of how spiritual learning takes place is you have in the church age a pastor-teacher. Now, it was on a Tuesday night a couple of weeks ago that I went through some uh, uh, figures of speech related to a phrase in, in Acts chapter 2 that uh, is similar to this phrase we have in Acts 4.11, uh, 4.12, that talks about pastor-teacher as what's called a hendiadis, which is a figure of speech that is, in fact, some Greek grammars just kind of skip over it because it's, uh, it's hard to express and difficult to understand, and some people don't express it very well. But in most cases in the, in the New Testament, what it expresses is not two equal concepts, but one, co- one of the two words is used to give... Uh, a, a meaning to how the other word functions. And so in this case, it is not pastor-teacher as if they're equal, but it is the, the teaching is how the pastor functions. And so it's really you pastor, and I think the pastoral metaphor in Scripture is really one of leadership. It's leadership through teaching. That's really the essence of the pastor-teacher role in the Scripture. He is the one who guides, directs, teaches, warns uh, through Scripture. And so the pastor teaches, 
and he teaches under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and when the audience is being filled by means of the Spirit, the role of the Holy Spirit is to make the teaching clear. Now, we all know that there are difficult things in Scripture, so if you come out of Bible class some night and you go, well, that was about as clear as mud, that doesn't mean you weren't filled with the Spirit, or neither was I. It just means that this is a tough piece of steak rather than some... uh, some pablum, and so you're going to have to chew on it for a while under the ministry of the Holy Spirit before it really becomes clear to you. Sometimes we have to hear things 75 or 100 times in the process of growth, just like any other area of learning, uh, before it really becomes clear to us. So what the Holy Spirit does is that he makes the truth understandable to us. He doesn't understand it for you. That's mysticism. It makes it understandable. The unbeliever doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He's not regenerate. He doesn't have the equipment to understand the Word. But the Holy Spirit makes it understandable to you so that uh, as pastors, just like everybody else, we study and we learn and we grow, and over time uh, we come to understand things. We may start off thinking, well, what that means is, is X, And as we take time and we learn and we grow in the Scripture, we say, no, that really wasn't right. It's it's this. And so the Holy Spirit then makes it understandable. And as we understand it, then we have our first basic uh, choice to make. Do we believe it or not? Now, let's say you're sitting out there in the audience and the topic is creation, And so you have a decision to make. Am I going to believe that God created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them in seven 24-hour consecutive days? Or am I going to rely upon what I was taught in uh, school, in biology, in geology, in history, in English, that, that the universe is really billions of years old? So you have to decide, am I going to believe this once you come to understand it? Now, there are times, you see, you can't believe something you don't understand. Belief is a cognitive concept, and if you don't understand something, you can't believe it because you have to, you're, you're believing something to be true. Now, you may not understand it comprehensively, but you have to have some understanding of what is being said. Now, I've talked to people before, and they've explained something I've taught, and they had no clue what I was talking about. They believe it firmly. That's that. You're not there yet. You have to understand it first before you can decide to believe it. You can't just believe it because, well, I know Pastor Dean. He's really studied this, and and that's what he came up with. So I'm going to ride along on his intellectual spiritual coattails. There are no intellectual spiritual coattails in the Christian life. So you have to understand it before you can believe it, and the believing is that first volitional decision. Am I going to believe that, that what the Bible says is true in whatever area of doctrine it might be? Then that is what goes into our soul at a level of basic academic knowledge or what is referred to in the Greek, by the Greek term uh, gnosis. So we, we understand it. We believe it. Uh, it's part of our, uh, of our thinking. Now, we have another volitional decision to make there. As we, the first, actually, the first volitional decision just has to be to study, make it understandable. The second one here is after we understand it, is to make it um, 
is to believe it. This is where the belief comes in. The other, the first one is that we're choosing to work at it, to understand it, and to study the Word, to learn the Word. Academic knowledge, then, we, when, it's, when we've learned it, now we have to believe it as to whether it is true or not. This is when it gets converted to epinosis or full knowledge, and the Holy Spirit stores that in our soul. And we learn all kinds of things. In any area of life, you learn thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces of data. And you only use or apply a small percentage of it. So we store all this doctrine in our soul, but that's not the end game. That's not the end game. That is what Paul is talking about here in terms of the process of being filled but then it's, when he comes to being filled with wisdom and understanding, that has to do with applying what's been stored. When we come to situations and circumstances, when we come to decisions and we come to um, uh, challenges in life, then we have to apply it. And so we take this uh, knowledge that's usable, and now we have to decide whether or not to apply it. This is the third time that we have to engage our volition. And so we apply it, and that is wisdom. So first of all, under the filling of the Spirit, we have to decide whether or not we're going to study the Word. That's the first volitional decision. Then, having studied it, we have to decide whether we believe it. That's the second volitional decision. At that point, it becomes gnosis, um, or excuse me, at that point, it becomes epinosis, and this is usable then, it's potentially ours for spiritual growth. It's usable. But then we have to make that, excuse me, oh, lost the whole diagram. Then we have to make the last decision, and that is to apply it. Just because it's epinosis, just because we believe it under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, does not mean that it, we automatically apply it. Some people have gotten that idea. Some people think that's what the filling of the Spirit is, that if we're full of the Spirit, He just somehow engage, disengages our volition and overrides it. And that's the problem with that word control. It's more influence. It's not control. Control indicates that He overrides our volition. Now, we have to make that volitional decision to apply doctrine in that particular circumstance. So we have this... Hebrew word wisdom that is related to another Hebrew word uh, that is um, understanding. Now, how do we get from epinosis to wisdom? That comes through a process of meditation. Meditation. Meditation isn't the Eastern concept of meditation, which in Eastern religions is more the idea of emptying your mind. But in the Scripture, when you look at the words used in the Old Testament, it has to do with focus or concentration on something, thinking through what the Word of God says. It's not just coming to Bible class and taking notes, but realizing that's just the ends to, I mean, the means to an end, and that what we need to do is then go think about what it is that we have learned from the Word so that in that process, God the Holy Spirit uses that to uh, help us understand application. This morning, I went through different words for meditation and discovered that there are four different Hebrew words used which are translated meditation in our English Bibles. The first word is amar. 
This is a word that means to, it's a standard word to say or to speak. Whenever you read for God said or Abraham said, the word for said is amar. But it also has the meaning of saying something to yourself. And that's when it is translated meditate. We are talking to ourselves. We do that all the time. We have uh, things, that we, talk, we have conversations in our mind about how we're going to make certain decisions and what we're going to do. And so in this sense, we're taking the Word of God and we're rehearsing it in our mind. We're thinking about what it means and what its implications. That's one of the great values of memorizing Scripture is you have to say those phrases over and over again as you're working through the process of memorizing it. And as you're saying them over and over again, you're thinking about or you should be thinking about, well, what do they mean? How, how does this clause fit with that clause? How does this phrase tie to that phrase? Because you want to understand sort of the logical structure because it helps you then in recall and in memory. So Amar has that idea of saying or speaking or talking to oneself in the sense of thinking about something. The second word is the word bakar, which means to seek or to inquire. So what you're doing now is you're thinking in an investigative sense in terms of the meanings of and implications of what we've learned from God's, God's Word. And we want to drill down into what these promises and these verses mean. And as we've learned uh, in Bible class, we've taken notes, we want to uh, think about it. The third word is the word Hagah, which means to utter or to mutter, uh, to moan, to meditate, to devise, or to plot. What these have to do, again, it's, it's very similar to the word Amar, talking to yourself, but it's thinking about something. It's, it's working through the structure of these things, uh, of what we've learned in God's Word to apply it. And then the primary word that is used, even though these others are used a lot, I mean, it's, it's not like it's uh, an equal split, but Shiach is the word that is uh, used a little bit more than the others, and it means to meditate, to muse, to commune, to speak, sometimes even to complain. So it has the idea of rehearsing something over and over in our mind to talk to our oneself about something or to go over a matter in one's mind. I've often heard the illustration of a, of a cow chewing on its cud. It's something that we chew over mentally, and then we may swallow it, and then the next day comes back up, we think about it some more, and we just keep going over it and over it and trying to get everything out of it that we can. And so we are mandated in many passages uh, to, to meditate. The uh, scriptures are filled with passages, especially the Psalms, related to meditating upon God's works, meditating upon God's word. Uh, one great example of meditating upon God's works would be the work of a scientist, a creation scientist like last year. We had Dr. Steve Austin here at the pastor's conference, and he was looking at uh, the geology of places like uh, Mount St. Helens, uh, the, the um, uh, Grand Canyon, things like that, and thinking about how God's Word and what God's Word says about the Noahic Flood applies to uh, what he is seeing in the geological uh, structures. And so that is one way of meditating upon God's Word. It helps us. It's a focus towards application, focus towards application and understanding. So when we look at Colossians 1.9, 
Paul prays for all of those in Colossae, we should be praying for one another in this way as well, that we might be filled with reference to, that is the content of the filling, is the knowledge of his will in all wisdom, spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. The word spiritual actually as an adjective applies to both wisdom and understanding. So I wanted to go through what the Bible says about wisdom and understanding. There are uh, two words that are used here. Chokhmah is the word for wisdom, and bean is the word for understanding. And, and bean, as I learned it with a little uh, uh, memory tool when I was memorizing vocabulary and, and, and Hebrew, means to decide between something. So bean is between. And it has to do with decision-making and, and understanding the issue so that you can choose and make, make good decisions, biblical decisions, between options A and B or C and D or whatever they might be. Chokmah in, in the Greek world uh, was very different. I mean, Chokmah in the Jewish world was very different from Sophia in the Greek world or Sophos. The Greek concept of wisdom had more to do with academic knowledge, intellectual attainment, intellectual sophistication, the understanding of uh, philosophy and the philosophers and trying to uh, unravel all of the confusing things about reality on the basis of human reason alone. But that's not the Jewish concept of wisdom. Uh, Jewish concepts of, of these abstract things were much more concrete. Greeks made them abstract. The Jews looked at things in a very concrete manner. For them, Hokmah was skill, skill at taking academic knowledge about something and applying it in a way that produced something of beauty, uh, something that had uh, a, a tremendous attractiveness to it. For example, with Aholiab and uh, Bezalel, who were two of the leaders in Israel, uh, when God the Holy Spirit came upon them, when they were to construct the uh, furniture of, and uh, the, the priest garments and everything for the uh, tabernacle, they were given chokmah. It's not that they had great philosophical skill. It's that they were given skill at in their craftsmanship, in sewing, in in uh, their work with metals and metallurgy and in their carpentry and building everything so that they produced something that was just a magnificent work of beauty. So when you apply that to the Christian life, it has to do with application. God is working in us to produce something that brings glory to him so that the application of his word in our life is designed to produce something that is that reflects his glory uh, that is beautiful and something that uh, reflects the sophistication uh, and the complexity of God's plans and purposes and who he is. Uh, understanding, on the other hand, I think precedes wisdom because understanding has more to do with discernment and application in decision-making. It has to do with critical thinking about the details and the challenges and decisions of life, whereas um, Hulkma has to do with the skillful application of doctrine to the details, challenges, and decisions of life. The Psalms are referred to, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, are all referred to as wisdom literature. Proverbs has a lot to say about wisdom and understanding. The starting point 
two verses, Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10. Proverbs 1.7 states, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Now, what is the fear of the Lord? This isn't being a, afraid of God. This is one of the ways we can look at this. It's, it's hard to bring this Hebrew term over into English because in English it, we really have to think of it in, in several different ways to catch the uh, fullness of what's in the, in the Hebrew word for the fear of the Lord. It has to do with uh, uh, subordination, submission to his authority. We recognize that God has created everything. Things are the way they are because God said so. And if we don't live in accordance with how God made things, then things can get pretty bad. We're not going to operate on arrogance and think that we're the creator and we're going to define uh, all reality. God is the one who's defined reality. So it's, it has to do with uh, subordination, submission to God's authority. It has to do with uh, respect for God in that sense. So often when we look at these phrases translated fear, uh, the emphasis is on respect, but it is, it's a healthy respect. I can have respect for uh, school teachers. I can have respect for a doctor, uh, but nothing of that quite approaches the respect I had for my father when my mother would say, just wait till your father gets home this afternoon. <laughs> Now, that's probably as close to the fear of the Lord as uh, an understanding as we can get. Uh, but it is that healthy respect for God that is the starting point of knowledge. Why is that? Because if we're not subordinated to God's authority, there's no humility there. We'll see the connection to humility in a minute. Uh, we're on arrogance. If we're on arrogance, then you can't learn anything. Uh, an arrogant student who thinks he knows everything uh, is is a terrible pain in the gluteus maximus for his teacher because he thinks he knows better. And so to learn anything, there has to be a measure of uh, humility, and the more humility, the more the potential for learning. So we have the fear of the Lord here as an expression of, of uh, orientation to God's authority, grace orientation, uh, humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools, and fools reject the authority of God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. In its place, they will substitute a pseudo-wisdom, an intellectualized, academic type of wisdom. But it is not wisdom in the biblical sense. Then Proverbs 9, verse 10, builds on that in verse 7, uh, Proverbs 1, 7, the fear of the Lord's beginning in knowledge. Knowledge precedes wisdom. In verse 10 of Proverbs 9, we have the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Notice we have those three words there, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. They all connect to one another. Wisdom and understanding are more uh, related to application. In the parallelism of verse 10, the fear of the Lord is parallel to knowledge of the Holy One. So knowledge of the Holy One here isn't understanding his attributes. It's related to understanding his authority. So that's the starting point, is submission to the authority of God. Second, we have the prerequisite for wisdom, which is humility. We have to be, it flows from the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 11.2 says that when pride comes, then comes shame, but with the humble is wisdom. So when you operate apart from God's word, it's always going to end up in shame. But 
humility under the authority of God produces wisdom. Proverbs 15.33, the fear of the Lord is the instruction of wisdom, and before honor is humility. This is why you can't learn leadership at the top. A good leader is a good follower, because if you don't understand principles of authority, which you've learned through submission to authority and learn humility, you can't be a good leader. A good leader is not arrogant. A good leader has to understand humility. This is why Moses is the greatest leader in history, because as Scripture says, he was the most humble man because he understood his role under the authority of God. Proverbs 22.4, By humility and the fear of the Lord are riches and honor and life. So proper understanding of who we are in submission to God's authority is the key to genuine prosperity in life. And that's not just having uh, the kind of high-end uh, cars that you want or large homes or whatever it may be. It's soul prosperity, not necessarily physical prosperity. Third, the emphasis in the Proverbs is on the priority of wisdom. Proverbs 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Not your clothes, not your cars, not your shoes. Hate to say that, some of you ladies. Not your boots. Say that to men. Say equal opportunity here in terms of application not any of your other boy toys or women toys or whatever they may be um, male toys whatever wisdom is the principal thing it's more important than anything else in life wisdom is the principal thing therefore get wisdom and in all you're getting get understanding now that's just another way of saying that in the process of pursuing wisdom you get and acquire understanding which has to do with decision making wisdom has to do with application proverbs 23:23 23, 23 says buy the truth and do not sell it also by wisdom the verb carries over also by wisdom instruction and understanding that's the priority so when it comes to Sunday morning, Tuesday night, Thursday night, when it comes to uh, working out at the gym or whatever else you may be doing when you have the opportunity just to listen to uh, instruction on the Word of God, you can plug in your iPod or your iPhone or whatever other uh, electronic media gadget that you have going all the way back to just a reel-to-reel recorder. Anybody has one that still works. And you get the word. It's the priority in your life. Everything else is designed to get that. Everything else is to feed towards your understanding of the word. Because if we get through the end of life and we haven't glorified God, then our life was a waste. And so the only thing that matters is knowing, knowing the word and making that a priority. This is why wisdom has value. The fourth point, the value of wisdom, Proverbs 8:11, for wisdom is better than rubies. And all the things one may desire cannot be compared with her. Whatever your top ten list is for what you want at Christmas or your birthday or whatever it is, nothing compares to your knowledge and application of God's Word. Proverbs 19.8, He who gets wisdom loves his own soul. He who keeps understanding will find good. And there's only one source of wisdom. Proverbs 2.6 and 7, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. So only through the study of God's word, under the filling of the spirit, learning it, applying it, do we have wisdom and understanding. Sixth, biblical wisdom is the only hope 
for meaning and happiness in life. Proverbs 3.13, happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gets understanding. Without it, life is just a pursuit of our own self-absorption and self-indulgence, and that doesn't bring uh, happiness at all. In terms of spiritual understanding, two verses in the Proverbs apply. Proverbs 10.13, wisdom is found on the lips of him who has understanding. See, understanding precedes wisdom here. But a rod, that is divine discipline, is the, for the back of him who is devoid of understanding. Proverbs 14.33, wisdom rests in the heart of him who has understanding. But what is the heart of fools? Uh, but what is in the heart of fools is made known. So when we look at that verse in Colossians 1.9, Paul is praying that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will, that is, knowing God's word, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And this is for the purpose that we can walk worthy to the Lord. Now, what we've seen here is the first of these priorities for prayer, that we might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and understanding. And then in Colossians 1.10, that we might walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him. That's the second purpose. Now, next time I'll come back and we'll focus more on three and four. Three is a prayer that we might be strengthened with all might. And then fourth is that we might give thanks to the Father, focus on gratitude and grace orientation with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect more upon this passage in Colossians, to go back to the Old Testament to understand the frame of reference for wisdom and understanding and the priority of your word, that it's, this isn't just something we do that's like anything else in life. Uh, everything else in life is secondary to uh, studying your word, learning your word, applying your word, because when it is all over with, the only thing that we take with us beyond the grave is the spiritual maturity that has been developed in our soul during this life. Father, we pray that we might be up to this challenge. And as the Apostle Paul prayed, that we might be filled with all, with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. And that first and foremost, there has to be that humility, that true genuine humility of submission to your will. Father, we pray too that if there's anyone here today that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their uh, eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins that we might know that we have eternal life and that by believing in him, we have that eternal life. And it is given to us as a free gift that is never taken from us. And so, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would take that opportun this opportunity to do that because you know what is in our heart. You know what our thinking is. You know that the instant we trust in Christ and at that point, you justify us. You impute to us God, Christ's righteousness and eternal life that we might that that will never be taken from us, so that we might know that we have eternal life. Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.